0: Feeling the world with comedy.
1: <laughs> what is that from?
0: It's uh, from Bo Burnham's new Inside. Oh. Inside yeah, it's uh, also something I've seen on TikTok quite a bit. Because you can follow the Jumps of History podcast on TikTok. <laughs> but it's like the first part of it is just some person just going like really deep into a story. And then they end it with er. And then the friend just goes. Blanker, hardly know her. And then it just that song pipes in. I'm doing a terrible job of describing the memes because you can't describe memes. You can't keep up with these zoomers nowadays. I know, but that just makes me laugh every time. Or it's like my friend saying, what am I doing later? And that's like, your mom. And then healing <laughs> the world with <laughs> comedy. It just pipes in from the back. <laughs> it makes me chuckle.
1: Hello, everybody. As Evan said, this is the Gems of History podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Shop and evan is obviously here with me today howdy and joining us again we have marshall mattis with us yo what's going on boys filling in for mark steinbrenner
2: who's
0: filling in for alex bush (laughs) (laughs) mattis who's filling in for mark steinbrenner
2: yeah so how have you been marsh good just got a new dog i was gonna Uh, ask a dog how's the how's the pup awesome we we really lucked out um he is like The chillest dog ever. So, did you know about it? Because Alex said she was going to surprise you. So, at first, it was a surprise. But we were going through a foster program. And that didn't really work out. So, then we just looked online at this humane society. Next day. All right, Marsh, we're going to just go to Petco. Pick out a couple things. Maybe look at the dog. No commitments. Yeah, we we got the dog. (laughs) So nice we love him what's his name what's he's like gunter he is a big boy i don't know technically oh it's a it's a mix with a pit bull i'm forgetting the other name of it but he's just got a big ass head <laughs> he's a big and, blockhead yeah he's he's pretty dumb he's a big dumb animal <laughs>
0: and those pictures that you've sent just such a big like honestly just like big snuggle bug it yeah he like-
2: is he loves to snuggle which is pretty great
0: oh what's that like <laughs> How old is Mizuki he? Mizuki just looks at me and he's
2: like <laughs> uh, He's 10 months Okay, so, so he's still little still baby Still a little puppy yet, yeah He's got some learning to do That's awesome
1: Look at this, the puppy's just coming in Left and right, now I can just be a dog uncle for everybody <laughs> Right
2: <laughs> Not have to do any of the work or buy any of the toys Or food yep. <laughs> I just get them all riled up and then yeah. head out
0: <laughs> Right, but dog stuff I think we were talking about before, mm-hmm. dog stuff how is it this expensive?
2: Yeah, <laughs> it is ridiculously expensive. It's like but having a kid.
0: I won't ever call it that, but yep. like, yes, I am a dog, or excuse me, a um, girl dad. That's the <laughs> <A> girl dad. <laughs> yes,
1: it's like
2: hashtag girl it sounds dad. Sounds so weird. Yeah. Um. What was I going to say? Oh, um. Chelsea, my sister in law, asked me. So, how's it like being a dad? And I'm like, what? Well, no, I just got a dog. <laughs> 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 All sarcastic and shit whatever.
0: Right. Like if it acts up, it's like, okay, you can you go can in a go cage in a, now. You,
2: can, you can't do that with a, a toddler. You can't put them in a cage. <laughs> okay. You frown upon that. Well, you could throw them in the crib and just walk out. <laughs> yeah, that's. I guess that is true. That's the equivalent. Oh, yeah. So huh. parallels. Yeah. <laughs> but,
1: are we
0: no better than dogs? <laughs> are you, are you?
1: We're definitely not better than dogs. Oh, absolutely. Dogs are not. way more pure than we are. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but anyways, uh, how are you guys? Halloween's
0: it was good. It was good. Uh, well,
1: I know part of how yours was because you came to my house for a, one of the nights. but
0: y- You probably remember more than me. <laughs> yeah, it
1: was, a, it was a rough night.
0: Yeah, and even worse morning. Yeah. Uh, but for everyone listening, I was uh, Frosty Daniels for Metro News 1. <laughs> and so uh, basically it was just a character I made up to do like street interviews. So I had this fake mic and just went up to everyone that was dressed up at the party and like at random people at the bars that we went out to. And just did, like, fake interviews. Like, asking, like, what do you have to say about the allegations of, like, blankety-blank. Um, it was honestly it, so much fun. And it was so the, many f- videos. the
1: funniest thing, watching <laughs> go around to people and do it.
0: Some strangers, like, for the most part, some people were, or people were very cool. But, like, there was this one guy who's like, I don't want to be recorded right oh, now. Oh, God. <laughs> and I was literally, the mic that was fake putting up, it was literally just like an xbox headset mic yeah it wasn't so no recording to capability
2: yeah was he like batting it down like i don't want to be recorded or no nah, like he that? was just like at the bar he's like i don't want
0: to be recorded right now oh. it's like no one does that's why this is an xbox mic <laughs> that's why this is funny yeah this is why it's hilarious i'm not a real reporter i'm wearing a like a suit coat that's like 30 sizes too big.
2: <laughs> i'm about 12 de- uh beers deep sir yeah Yeah, i made you
0: can't see behind these glasses but i am (laughs) (laughs) cross-eyed
1: i made like a blackberry moscow mule and like i originally put it in this container that had like a nozzle on it so you could just like pour it out of there but then the nozzle immediately got clogged by the blackberries that were in it so i just put it in a bowl but it was like a decent sized bowl but it was basically just a candy bowl and it was had an entire 1.75 of vodka in it, so it was pretty potent. So it was uh, pretty spicy. Yeah, like you guys were saying it definitely got me lit faster than I was expecting.
0: Right, but yeah, it was a good time. It was
1: a lot of fun. We had a your party at your place yep. the weekend before, mm-hmm. so we haven't recorded since then. Yeah, but, can
0: uh, I say Halloween is just straight up starting to become like Christmas, like the amount of parties yeah. that people have. Like I'm not complaining. It's like amazing time but it's like holy
1: cow why am i so busy in october i know right well it's it's crazy too because like you have halloween decorations and stuff out at stores but you also have christmas decorations at stores right away so we haven't even hit thanksgiving just give us like a little bit of
2: time in between at least
0: how does one decorate for thanksgiving like do i just need to start i mean i have pumpkins everywhere already do i need to take top my big spider web? good
2: enough (laughs) a cornucopia
0: yeah
1: cobs of fake cobs of corn (laughs) that's about it a full That's pilgrim a- outfit. <laughs> a what? A full pilgrim outfit. Yes, absolutely. Buckled shoes and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we had a party at the the Mattis household, a little Halloween slash
2: pre-wedding party. So yep. that, that was a good time. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. A lot of beer drink. A lot of games. Yep, that was a lot of fun. Um, I think we
1: had like 14, 15, something like that yeah. people around <laughs> these yeah. two tables.
2: Yeah. And- <laughs> In, like, the smallest room in the house. (laughs)
1: Trying to play Flip Cup. Yeah. That was a fun time. Yeah. That was a lot of fun.
0: I had no room to flip.
1: (laughs) I was getting cramped. But, yeah, Halloween festivities were good on our end, so hopefully all you out there had a good time, or safe and responsible, but had fun as well. I I was disappointed. I only had two trick-or-treaters, and they were my neighbors. Oh, really? uh, Yeah. (laughs) I didn't, like, put out a bowl of candy or anything, but I was in my house, so but no one came to the door, so I just... Yeah, I wasn't
0: here, so I unfortunately couldn't see. It. I just went trick-or-treating with my nieces and nephews, which, like, that just brings a huge joy in my heart, just seeing them in their little costumes. Yeah. Like, one was a ladybug, and the other one was a snail, and they were just hooked oh. out. <laughs> then we had Spider-Man and a lion for the other two. Like, oh, my yeah. goodness, this is way too cute.
1: See, I almost would rather do that, because just, like, make my fill up my Yeti with, like... A nice drink and just walk around with the kids and watch them have a good time
0: yeah that's what we did too and apparently it's now just a tradition to hand out jello shots, shots. for yeah. the adults mm-hmm. like i did that on friday whatever day it was i got like three jello shots and then there was just seven more houses like with jello shots apparently like I can't do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. my coworker <laughs> is telling me. I need to have a kid just so I can get lit. Like, <laughs> right? What's going on?
1: My my uh, coworker was telling me the same thing that they do that in their neighborhood, and she's like, "Yeah, the cops should, like drive around just and acknowledge that it happens and just let it go as long as people are being responsible." So it's like, right. that, That's pretty cool. Gives the adults a reason to uh, enjoy it at least. So if they don't want to be out there, at least
0: right. Only way to keep yourself warm.
1: Yeah, it was chilly. Yeah, so cold. Back to the weather. Always comes back yep, to the weather. Yep. <laughs> full
0: circle. Full circle.
1: But anyways, we are back with a, another new episode. We're out of the spookiest month of the year, so this one's going to be a, a little more lighthearted. I than can Evan's, sleep at night. Than Evans' dastardly murders. Uh,
0: yeah, looking back at just the content.
1: Of that. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny because I went for like a Twitter ghost story and you're just like murder Murdered. death. Horrible atrocities.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was not <laughs> honestly I was just planning like the next couple subjects I wanna do and we're just gonna well, I was gonna say we're probably gonna go around wars, so more murder. Hey. <laughs> I swear to G-O-D, I will do a dog's episode. God. <laughs>
1: Just as a palate cleanser. Right. Well, Just
0: re-air the dog episode. T-
1: today's will be a, a little bit of a palate cleanser. It's more lighthearted. But before we get to that, got to do our handy-dandy trivia questions. So uh, who would like to start? Not me. Not me. Oh. <laughs> uh, nose goes. Ooh, uh, Evan, that's you.
0: No fair. My nose is so stuffy. <laughs>
2: <clears throat> Same.
0: Yeah, honestly, I think just everyone in Wisconsin is sick now. Yeah. <laughs> so, a period of the French Revolution saw an unprecedented number of mass executions, back to murder, uh, in response to revolutionary fervor, anti-clerical sentiment, and accusations of treason among the French population. What was this period between 1793 and 1794 called? Was it A, the Reign of Terror, B, the Revolucion Roja, C, the Year of Blood, or D, the Age of Treason?
1: Um, I'm going to go with
2: the Year of Treason, I think. <laughs> Sorry. For some reason, I thought of the streets run red with burgundies. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it killed a guy. <laughs> yeah, but maybe sit low. down and talk
0: to you about that. You should probably lay low for a while. <laughs>
2: Um, okay, what was what was B the different language? What was that?
0: Revolution Roja.
2: Yeah, which, that one. Perfect. So the
0: correct answer was actually A the Ooh, Reign of Terror. Dang. So background to this, this is right before the or this is during like the French Revolution, where France was overthrown. Um basically in response to the beginning of the French Revolution, the French government was like, We're just gonna kill everyone. So more murder, a ton of mass executions, which just angered the populace a lot more uh, and inspired just more revolutionaries to join the cause.
1: France just went like execution crazy for a little while, like Europe in general was, but I feel like France just kind of took it and ran for like a good hundred and fifty years.
0: Yeah, and then they chilled out and like, no, now we're the city of love. Like yeah, Paris.
2: <laughs> you can't just rebrand that quickly. <laughs> We, yeah, well, what a spin zone. We didn't forget.
0: Yeah. Never forget the French Revolution. <laughs>
2: um, I, I saw some fact that like the last guillotine exec, execution in, I don't know if it was France or whatever, but it was like in 1940 or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. We, I think Evan talked about that once oh, on okay. here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, one of our trivia questions, I believe.
2: Yeah. I think it was
1: like 1937 or something like right? that. And, like a public in the street yeah. guillotining. Yeah.
0: just. Into a basket of fruit.
1: <laughs> it's just crazy how long that went on for. I mean, there there still like isn't a law that says you can't do that, so I guess it could still be a thing if people wanted to. But it's just frowned upon. Yeah, it's just morally not a thing that we do anymore. But for the best, yeah, I'd yeah. say. Mm-hmm. All right, want me to yeah. go
2: next or you? I'll I'll take it. I'll all take right, the reins. all right. Van Halen, the band. Famously banned what color M M while uh, backstage before a show. Was it A brown, B green, C blue, or D red?
0: Uh, wow, I never knew this. That's actually pretty interesting. Um I wanna say
2: it's blue.
1: Hmm.
0: Red.
2: The correct answer was a brown. Dang it! Really, that was my gut feeling too. (laughs) I didn't follow it. Yeah. So um, I heard about this. I don't know when this was. I just saw the question, but I kind of knew some of the backstory. So they would have all these requests for their like green room, their backstage, and to make sure the people read it, they would have something stupid in there like that. So if they didn't have, if they had wanted a bowl of M and M's in there, if they saw a single brown M and M in there, they would cancel the show really yeah because hmm. they had all these requests and like they knew they didn't read it if there were brown m&m that's in there fair. yeah
1: i feel like family guy did like a rip off of that because there's an episode where brian writes like a self-help book oh yeah. and then he gets all mad in one of his like before his book speaking or whatever mm-hmm. he there's like brown m&ms in the bowl or whatever right. so that's why it sounded familiar. <laughs> he's a dog that's colorblind <laughs> 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 that's funny but it's so funny hearing stories about those early metal bands like Motley Crue and stuff where they would like trash hotel rooms so bad mm-hmm. that, like, one time their like manager went in the room and saran wrapped everything or whatever. Like, <laughs> all of the individual bottles of beer were saran wrapped and stuff so they That's couldn't great. break it. It's just like, wow. If, if you're just, that bad, <laughs> you have to yeah. take those kind of precautions. I can't That's imagine just bad. being
0: a lowly hotel manager. <laughs> yeah.
1: Just hearing that they're coming into town, you're like, Guess we're going to have to put in a budget for a new room. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just insane.
0: Of all the Ramadas, you had to come to mine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So my question for you boys. During the early days of the People's Temple, led by the notorious Jim Jones of Cyanide and the Flavor Aid fame, he actually focused on outreach and preaching before becoming a doomsday prophet in South America. So which one of the following was not one of the ways he conducted himself for his congregation in the beginning? A, he organized soup kitchens for all ethnicities. B, he showed animal intestines at church services. C, he ran a church bowling league. Or D, he sold monkeys door to door. So this is something you said not? Yeah, which one of those is not something that he did?
0: C, it's got to be the bowling thing.
2: Wait, what was C again? Run that one back at me. So
1: A is organized soup kitchens for all ethnicities. B showed animal intestines at church services. C ran a church bowling league, or D sold monkeys door to door.
2: I'm I'm gonna say D, the monkey. I mean, man, I feel like it's the bowling thing. I'm going with D. Monkeys didn't do that. You're going C.
1: Yep. Evan, you are correct. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. So he did all the other three. He uh he sold monkeys door to door to he like imported them, sold them door to door to raise funds for the church. And at the beginning, and I guess throughout, even when like he was moved to South America with his cult, uh, preached seg like anti segregation. Like he was really for like interracial co- like connection. So he opened up all of his churches to all ethnicities and had like every commu- like little community pick their own preacher and stuff like that. So mm. he actually did a lot of good stuff and he raised helped people get jobs for minorities and stuff like that. So it started off like pretty good, but obviously took a very bad turn and ended up with almost a thousand people dead in the forest. Oh, yeah. So Yeah. Not a good way to end it, but There were some highlights in there.
0: If only he just focused on the Church Bowling
1: League. I could have saved him. You know, you get some embroidered shirts with patches on the back that have a
2: team name. Exactly. Then you're good to go. What would their team name be? Don't Drink the (laughs) Kool-Aid? Maybe. maybe. I don't know. Probably just the People's Temple
1: Bowling League or something like that.
0: The Bones Bowlers.
1: The Pin Temple. Oh. There we go. Nice. Well done. But anyways... So, are you guys ready to get into our main topic for the day?
0: Where there's finally not even an ounce of murder or sad—well, a little bit of sadness.
1: There is some sadness, but no outright murder.
0: <laughs> I don't think any intentional murder. No,
1: definitely not. But there's— so does that make it just? There's a couple dying? people dying, but I don't think <laughs> yeah. it was intentional. So, but uh, this is another like long overdue GoFundMe suggestion from my father who donated a large amount to help finish out the, the GoFundMe for our Children's Hospital fundraiser. So he suggested that we cover this. So we're doing it now a few months. Yeah, late, but, a little tardy. But we got to, we got here eventually. Mm-hmm. So
0: yes. First and foremost, thank you very much.
1: Yes. Thank you all to all of you who donated. Mm-hmm. And we are... Throwing around the idea of doing another bar crawl, but we'll see if we can organize something and get that all together again, because it's a lot of work (laughs) to put that all together. So we'll, we'll see if we have time, but yeah. anyways, we are going to be covering the eccentric billionaire Howard Hughes today. So before I get into it, my sources were biographics on YouTube. There is a New York Times article from 1977 that I found online that I used. Uh, History.com, PlaygroundToTheStars.com, and Maxim.com. So those are my main sources. And Evan, I don't know if you used any other sources that you want to mention.
0: Yes. I also found some information on the New York Post, uh, as well as History.com. And then finally... (laughs) On FactCity.com. There we go. Fact, Fact City. It's an, en-
1: <laughs> an entire city built of facts.
0: <laughs> Just the amount of well actually, as you probably Yeah, seriously. Hear. Just minding your own business and a conversation and well actually. But
1: when I was researching this guy, I was like, man, this guy's life sounds like a lot of fun until it's not. <laughs> until it's very much not. <laughs> yes. So it, I was like, I, I got li- like this guy. Yeah. I'd probably hang out with this guy if I could when he was like at least... In his prime but right there's a very quick downward spiral out of that period of his life so but Howard Hughes was one of the most wealthy individuals of the 20, early 20th century topping the chart as the wealthiest at one point in his life he staked his claim in multiple avenues from oil drilling to Hollywood and even to government aviation projects but due to his own stubbornness, as well as pride, his life began a downward spiral into delusion and fear in the latter portion of his 70 years. Did fame and riches get to Howard's head and corrupt this once pioneering young man? Or perhaps some sort of illness crept its way into his head? Well, let's find out as we explore the life of Howard Hughes from beginning to end.
0: Yeah, excited to dive into this one. He yeah. was an interesting individual, very troubled, both uh, well, definitely probably get into like mental health stuff yeah all that as well as just don't do drugs drugs are bad
1: (laughs) i uh had my dad was he called me one day he's like did you guys cover this or this i was like uh kind of sorta i don't think so and then he's like what about howard hughes i'm like who the hell is Howard yeah. Hughes? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I had never heard of this guy before. So it was cool, like researching him and finding out how much of an actual impact he had on society for someone that I'd never heard of before.
0: Right. Yeah. And uh, he actually was the main inspiration for a movie called The Aviator. Yep. Uh, featuring Leonardo oh, DiCaprio, uh, which was oh, yeah, a Martin Scorsese it. film. Yeah. So, I mean, he definitely had a huge impact on a lot of different industries as well as just literally being the richest man alive at one point.
1: And you always hear about like Carnegie and Rockefeller, but I never really heard of Hughes when I was learning about all of these pioneering tycoons for different things. So, and it's kind of crazy because his dad kind of reinvented how oil drilling is done. So it's kind of a big deal. Literally. But, uh, Marshall, have you ever heard of this guy before?
2: Nope. Nope. Never have. Um, I'm going to guess, my guess is that you talked about the illness there, the, because he had, uh, what was it? Something about being paranoid and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, isn't that? That's probably one of the symptoms of either dementia or Alzheimer's, right? They kind of,
1: they don't give him that. They don't mm, say that no. he had that. It's actually it's something different, but we'll get into it as we go along. Sure. But uh, from the biographics that I like, the YouTube video I watched, they actually throw in scenes from The Aviator uh, into the the YouTube video and it from the stuff that i saw it looks like they do or leonardo dicaprio did a really good job of portraying that like slight change into madness as he goes along so i haven't watched the movie yet i was going to try and watch it before i we recorded but i didn't have time so i'm definitely going to watch it when i have some free time cuz everyone on the youtube channel said it was a really good movie so
0: yeah it is a good one Maybe just a Gems of History movie night.
1: I'm totally down for that. We got to watch the Insidious movies, too, according to Mark. So We, can, we have a lot on our plate. <laughs> we can live tweet all of them. Right. We got to <laughs> do that. that. That sounds like fun.
0: That would be a lot of fun.
1: So with that all being said, let's get into the early life of Howard Hughes Jr. So Howard's parents, Howard Robald Hughes Sr. and Elena Stone Gano, were an ambitious inventor and a hypochondriac, respectively. So his father was originally from Joplin, Missouri, and started off penniless. And he was eventually run out of town in 1899 when he tried to seduce a girl, and her father found out and chased him out. Classic. So he really didn't have anywhere else to go, so he wandered down to Texas. And while he was down there, he very luckily ran across an oil spring in a place known as Spindletop. And so he... At the time, then bought a bunch of the acres of the land near the oil spring for a couple dollars an acre before everyone else got there. And then within days, he was able to flip that land for hundreds of dollars an acre and amassed a small fortune pretty quickly. So Howard Sr., also known as Bo, then moved to Houston and started the Texas Oil Fuel Company, which was the precursor to Texaco, and married his wife, Elena Stone Gano. So his wife was said to be kind of a dark and brooding woman, and she was scared of small animals and hated bugs due to the fact that she was absolutely obsessed with being clean all the time. So she was very much a hypochondriac, scared of
2: anything, germs or dirt. Or eel critters, basically. So these, what you're describing. Sorry, because I didn't realize his dad was the same name, right? Yes. So uh, you're describing the parents, right? Yes. Yeah.
1: So it's Howard Hughes Senior, and then his mother Elena. Okay. I think it's pronounced Elena, but I don't know for sure. Um,
0: let's go with that. Elena doesn't sound uh, doesn't roll off the tongue.
1: Spelled A L L E N E. So I'm gonna go with Elena, but I don't know because I (laughs) I didn't pay enough attention to learn it. But Howard Hughes Jr. I oh, don't know,
0: we may get Howard Hughes stands coming out. Yeah, right. How could you
2: mispronounce <laughs> whatever, whatever her name, name is? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so important. I mean, she was a pretty important figure in his life, but it's not important enough for me. Drama. <laughs> pro- no. yes. <laughs> Good old times. So, Howard Hughes Jr., also known as Sonny, was born on September 24th, 1905. So he was very coddled by his hypochondriacal mother, and she would remain very overprotective throughout his life until she passed away in 1922. And that overbearing motherly presence would turn young Howard into uh, a feminine boy, which he, it kind of hurt his reputation throughout his early years, which also wasn't helped by the fact that he inherited the family partial deafness, which they found out at the age of four he had When he couldn't really hear too well, so that kind of made him a very inward child and kind of he didn't really associate as much with other people at school and stuff like that because he just kind of did his own thing. When Howard Jr. was still quite young, his father got fed up with the slow and tedious drill bits that people were using to get oil out in the fields. So, instead of paying someone to do the work for him, he decided he would just change up how the work was done altogether by creating a new drill bit. And so, in November of 1908, Bo had come up with a design for a new drill bit that would become known as the Hughes bit, which was a rotary tricone drill bit that contained 168 cutting edges. And so, this kind of Re- like revolutionized the entire way that oil drilling was done mm-hmm. because it made the job so much easier.
2: You could say that this
1: invention was cutting edge. But, um... Tss. Yes. <laughs> That's why we have you yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, this was, like, a huge deal. Dealing the world with <laughs> comedy. comedy. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, this was, like, a very big deal for the entire oil industry. So, People were jumping on this right away because he got it patented very quickly after he realized how big of a deal this actually was. And so he and a friend of his, whose first name I don't remember, I think it was Walter Sharp, started the company known as the Sharp Hughes Tool Company. So this quickly made the Hughes family millions of dollars. And so now, with money being no obstacle, Howard Jr. was sent to an exclusive private school. And at the school, his teachers called him uppity and boring and <laughs> called him pretty pretentious. And his like fellow classmates made fun of him because he preferred to hang around the girls more than the boys due to that feminine personality. And it prompted all the other kids to label him as a sissy.
2: That's like the most like nineteen early nineteen hundreds description of somebody that like was just a little bit different. Yeah, you're <laughs> such a sissy. You're sissy and boring,
1: especially for like an exclusive private school where it's like these snobby right. wealthy kids. Like, oh, you're such a sissy. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and the teachers just calling him uppity and boring is mm-hmm. hilarious. It's like he didn't answer things well. It's like. Pff. Yawn next. <laughs> Basically,
1: that's like what is his teachers just kind of roasted him. They're like, this kid's not nice or not cool at all. Nuh-uh. <laughs> but uh. But despite not getting along with the students at his school, he was still a very bright and extremely technically skilled child. And there is a photo of him in the paper at age 14 after he put together the first motorized bicycle in Dallas. And it was a like a steam motor that he put on a regular bicycle, and that was the first ever motorized bicycle. What the hell? Yeah, it was
0: super impressive. Just the, looking at the same picture, the design of it, it's pretty genius. Yeah,
1: it's like very compact too. It's yeah. not like very bulky or anything. Damn. And before that, at the age of 11, he assembled his first wireless transmitter, so this kid was just out of the gate very early on in life. So I guess having a pretty technically skilled father probably helped oh, push absolutely. him in that direction. But yeah. yeah, this this guy knew what he was doing.
0: He did it at that age. Like I can barely put together like. Like a birdhouse if yeah, I wanted right?
1: to. Like as a freshman in high school, could I have
2: put together a motorized bicycle? Dude, I don't even know how engines work and I'm twenty-five. So.
0: <laughs> I'm twenty six and I still think that the radio is just dark, <coughs> dark magic. Dark magic. Yeah. It doesn't make any it sense to me. To be- it never will. How hey, are people listening to me talk right now? It doesn't make any sense he's to a, me.
1: Like, how does a microwave work? It just I put it in there and right? it spins around and gets hot. Yeah. <laughs> put your phone in there, it'll charge it. Does it? <laughs> no. I, I heard. I heard that if you put a metal spoon in there, it'll help you like make your ice cream yeah. easier. <laughs> oh my god. Uh. So, however, his father still wanted Howard Jr. to be more manly, and so, as is <laughs> <He> probably just...
2: <laughs> a customary thing in the early
1: 1900s.
0: Why don't you have a mustache, Dad? I'm 12. Why aren't you into
2: sports, <laughs> Dad? I built like a motorcycle. What do you want? <laughs> I don't care. Catch this
1: pigskin. <laughs> I'm imagining like the boxing ring from Sherlock Holmes yeah. movie where he's like incapacitate. I'm imagining Howard Sr. just like get in there and fight. <laughs> yeah. Dad, I'm 12. <laughs> I want to build bicycles, father. <laughs> <laughs> so his father decided to send him to the Boy Scouts, which was kind of like an early army program at the time. It was very regimented and very Military like.
0: So I'll say that he sell just the most popcorn there, so it must just be a lot different than what the boys <laughs> I'm not hating on the Boy Scouts, let me get that clear. But it's just like it seems like it's a different program. It is
1: an, it from what it sounds like, it's entirely different than what it is huh. nowadays, where like back then it was almost like a boot camp kind of situation where everything was regimented, you had someone watching over you at all times. Wow. And so he got sent out into the mountains <laughs> with his like Boy Scout leader. So they went into the mountains under the watch of General Dan Beard. And while there, it was said that he excelled very well at woods, all of the woodsmanship tasks. And he shook off some of that nervousness and femininity that his mother had pushed on him. And he kind of became a lot closer to the man that he would eventually become. And this is kind of, I feel like, a pretty important point because it really did reshape who he was as a person. He kind of shook off that stigma that he had when he was in his early teenage years and kind of broke out of that mold. So after this, there was an event where he went to the rowing races at Harvard at the age of 14 with his father. And he bet his father that Harvard would win the race. And his father said, okay, if they do win, I will give you whatever you ask for. And so as his prize, Howard Jr. requested $5. So he took that $5 and walked over to a little booth that said $5 airplane rides. So him and his father went on a quick 10-minute airplane ride where his father threw up and did not enjoy himself. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. But Who's the man now? <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> but this was very pivotal for Howard Jr., who realized that one of his true loves in life was flying. And so it was said that pretty much from this point on, Howard Jr. was always at his most peaceful while he was in a plane. And that was kind of one of his good like solaces was getting up and flying. So his father died in 1924, two years after his mother, leaving Howard Jr. alone at the age of 18, like right into 19. And it was at this age that Howard Jr. was able to convince a judge that he was responsible enough and smart enough to control the entire fortune that his father had amassed, as well as the Hughes Tool Company, which became singularly Hughes Tool after Walter Sharp passed away and his wife, or his widow, sold the other 50% to Hughes Sr. So, this is pretty impressive, Eighteen year old kid being able to stand up in front of a court and say very confidently that I am good and like ready to control millions of dollars and an entire company. Right. That's
0: Thousands ridiculous. of people too.
1: Yeah. Well, dropping out of school, not maintain not getting your college degree and just going and running an entire business. However, uh <laughs> it was Pretty apparent to Howard Jr., who I'll simply refer to now as Howard since his father's no longer in the picture. Rip. He realized that he knew nothing about running an oil drilling company. So he hired a man named Noah Dietrich to run the company for him. Yeah, so,
0: he was just wanting to build bikes, man. Yeah,
1: he was, he had it all figured out. I mean, he had all of the money that his father had amassed. All of it was his now, and he had, didn't have any other siblings. So he didn't really have to split it one way or another. And so he, had complete control over what he did and mm-hmm. it, he knew right away I need to find someone competent enough and
2: who knows what they're doing to run this company for me. Um, I don't know if you're going to talk about this now and I don't want to spoil anything, but I, it's crazy. The similar similarities between this man and Tony Stark of, like, yeah. I, I don't know if right. you, should I hold off on that no, that's... Thoughts? but like it, his dad's name was Howard too and like the whole like mm-hmm. running the company when he was 21 or whatever after his dad died it's crazy mm-hmm. anyways sorry and they both probably had daddy issues so there we go they definitely well, he... and I, I know Tony Stark did but I don't, I don't think Howard Hughes
1: did really he, his father seemed to be like a very his both of his parents all said and done seemed to be very good people it just mm seems like his mother was very overbearing because she was that, like, major hypochondriac and germaphobe. Mommy issues. Yes. Mm. So if anything, I think the mom impacted him negatively more than the father did, Mm -hmm. because it seemed like his father just wanted him to experience different avenues in life and wanted to make sure that he was ready to take on the world as it was at the time, so. Right. But it is... Said in that, like the Maxim article does a lot of comparisons where uh, they compare him to being basically a prototype of a lot of the modern tycoons nowadays, like Bill Gates, who dropped Mm. out of college and just went to pursue a career in business or whatever they wanted to do because they knew, well, I'm not getting anything out of this. I already know what I want to do. I might as well just follow that dream. And it's kind of the same thing here, except he just came into a ton of money and used it to further his passions. So after he gave the company over to Noah to run, he had a ton of free time to pursue his actual passions like flying and Hollywood. And so one day, Howard was out golfing at the Beverly Hills Country Club and a small plane flying overhead tipped its wing at him. And so Howard tracked down the pilot of that plane and told the man that he would pay him the large amount of a hundred dollars a day in like nineteen twenty-six or whatever it would be. Oh wow! To teach him how to fly. So the man obviously said yes, and two years later Howard received his private pilot license. Two
0: years. So translate that into. I mean, he's doing pretty well. The pilot. Is yeah, I, I
1: would say. I don't know if all of that was just that man, but. Right. I mean. Two two years, private flying lessons, and he learned how to get his own pilot license and then would fly
2: the rest of his life for the most part. So, so I, I just looked up inflation calculator because I always love that's so interesting to me. So in 1926, right, you said? It's around there because this was shortly after his father passed away. Sure. In 1926, $100 equates to $1,549.77. $1,500 a day, that's pretty good. To, to teach this us- punk kid how to fly yeah right <laughs> pretty good 18 deal. 19 not year old. not punk kid. He was
1: a pretty good kid but right still uh, if i had some if i was like a 40 year old man who had been flying recreationally for a while and some 20 year old kid comes up to me and says i'll give you 1500 to teach me how to fly I'd be like oh this is gonna be a pain but the money's too good right yeah, <laughs> right but It was also around this time that Howard decided that he wanted to try his hand at Hollywood because he loved movies so much. And having millions of dollars, that seemed like something he could pretty well get into. So his first foray into the industry was as a producer in the 1926 film Swell Hogan, which was, I did a little research on it, and it's a film, all I could find was a film about a friendly bum from New York, the New York City of Bowery, who helps orphans. Okay. And that's all I could find because this movie, after being advised not to release it because it was so bad, <laughs> it was never released publicly. It could have been like the predecessor
0: to like the disaster artist, just the movie's so bad. Yeah.
1: It's so. I don't know. It was never released, so no one really knows what the entire story was, but they found still frames of different shots from the movie. So they figured out who the main actor was, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head. I didn't write it down. But yeah, they're just like, we think this is what it's about, but we don't know. But it was apparently bad enough that his. Cohorts told him that he should probably destroy it before releasing it. So,
0: Ooh, I can't imagine just having your buddies being like, "Dude, yeah. dude, dude, dude."
1: And I believe they said that he spent sixty five thousand dollars on this movie. Wow! Which, in nineteen twenty six, is a good chunk of change, right, right? So, he he already found himself in the hole, but the, he didn't let that stop him, and. A year after this, he was a part of his first hit movie called Two Arabian Nights, which Mm. would win an Academy Award for Best Comedy Direction. Oh, yeah. So he went from zero to hero, pretty much, hitting another movie and hitting his stride right away. So after this, he went on to pursue his biggest passion project, which was writing, producing and directing his first movie combining his two loves of Hollywood and aviation. And he had to do all of it himself for as far as like directing and producing because he could not get along with the other people that he brought on board because of how particular he is. And this is where we kind of see his peculiar and very obsessive ways first hitting the surface because he was so nitpicky about different things about the movie that it ran way over the end date for the production and way over budget. So, during production, Howard wanted things as realistic and perfect as possible. So, he bought a good-sized fleet of vintage planes, hired as many pilots as were needed to shoot scenes, and it was said that he was so particular about how the filming needed to go that he would postpone or redo large sections of film if the clouds weren't perfectly correct for the shot. So that's some next
0: level OCD
2: yikes. literally a perfection artist. He, I mean, he talked about like being over budget and over time. I mean, that takes a lot of time and money to like, Oh, clouds aren't right. Cancel the day. You know, yeah, that's a lot of time. And they money.
1: said that they would literally sit around for hours while he just waited for the correct cloud formations and stuff so that they could film the scene. And I'm, he would have them film it like tens of times to get this shot perfect,
2: I, I mean it's 1927, right? Or right? this is around 19
1: like 29,
2: 19, 29. Yeah, I, it's still black and white. Yeah. How <laughs> much does a cloud coverage matter? I mean, I guess if it's overcast, it's hard to film with no light. But... Right. And you're in
1: airplanes filming a movie in the 1920s. Like you, you should be thankful that you're just getting good film in general. Right. Right. But yeah, he was he was very peculiar about it, and everyone kind of got fed up by it. Uh, by that, but the movie did continue, and during filming one day, Hughes decided to take out a small scouting plane, and when he took it out, it was a plane that he had never flown before, and he ended up tailspinning and ended up crashing, and freaked out the entire production crew, and luckily, he wasn't hurt, but this was the first of his many accidents that would come throughout his life. And it was kind of funny because all of the cast members, once they saw that he wasn't hurt, jokingly said, well, at least he didn't hurt his check writing arm. <laughs> oh,
0: honestly, I'm sure he's very hard to work with. So understandable. I understand. Exactly.
1: Like, so you can see where people's heads were kind of at at this point with working with this man.
0: Right. And like the fact I one of the things that I saw this is from my history source, like three pilots actually died during production of this movie. Ooh. So, like, Hughes got off pretty lucky.
1: Yeah. And I mean, he bought an air fleet that was like bigger than some country's entire (laughs) like air forces. So, he wanted authenticity, I guess. He wanted this to be as real as possible. So, the film was originally filmed to be a silent film. However, in 1927, when talkies became a big thing in the movie world, Hughes decided to rewrite the script and refilm all of the scenes with dialogue parts. Oh, boy. And he even replaced the lead actress because she had a very strong Norwegian accent. And so he replaced her with a different woman, which kind of blew my mind because I was like, man, this probably, like, talkies probably ruined a lot of people's careers just because no one had to hear them before. Mm -hmm. And now if your voice doesn't fit, then you're out. Right. Yeah. Like, you can't really be.
0: Russian be like in a Western film, yeah. Like it didn't really make too much sense
1: because before you just had to be pretty and right. look the part. Um, so
2: what's that song? I forget the song. It's Video Killed the Radio yeah. Star. Yeah, exactly. Same same type of deal.
1: Hmm. The final film called Hell's Angels was released in 1930 after a total budget of four million dollars in Oof. 1930. So I did already I. Did the inflation calculator when I was doing my notes, and that translates to $61.7 million today, which is not a lot because, for reference, the average cost of producing and marketing a movie in 2020 was around $100 million. But you also have to consider that's $4 million in 1930. Also, like,
2: also, too, I feel like the the focus in that era is not really entertainment. Now it's like you put out a Netflix show or whatever, Somebody's everyone's going to watch it and it makes money. At that time, potentially, people might not even see it. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, and I mean, now you have to pay for a ton of different people to do, like, video effects and all that. Back then, you basically just had to pay for the actors and the camera crew. Right. So there's a lot less moving parts for filming back then than there is nowadays where you have After Effects and editing and scoring and all of that stuff, so... But I looked up the average cost of production for a feature film in 1930, and Hughes spent $4 million on this, where the average cost was $375,000. So he was over eight times more than the average cost. Wow. <laughs> However, the movie was a box, uh, box office hit and returned twice the production costs.
2: Worth it. So, so eight million he got yeah. back. Wow.
1: Okay. All right. According to the biographics, that's made back double what he spent, which is that's insane impressive. for a movie back then. I feel like wow.
0: People are just amazed by the cloud shots.
1: Yeah. Wow, like this- man, those clouds are perfect. Yeah,
2: clouds are perfect in every shot. Wow.
1: <laughs> I really want to watch this movie though, because I want to see how cool, like how good it actually is. Right. But he had uh, a few flop movies after this, but. After a while, he, I think it was 1934, he produced Scarface, the movie about Al Capone. So, this was kind of his first controversial movie because when he submitted it to the censors, they did not agree with all of the profane material in the movie and they wanted Hughes to cut out large sections and edit it down. But Hughes, instead of going and doing that, decided to sue the censor bureau and won the lawsuit. What? And so the movie was released as it was originally intended by Howard Hughes. So this man just decided, I'm not going to take no for an answer. Yeah,
0: he's like, no, I don't want to censor <laughs> basically, it.
2: Basically. If the if the rules say you can't, you change the rules, and that's it, what he did. Basically, like he's he was honestly a pioneer in a lot
1: of different things. So that would definitely not be his last run-in with the censors, but it's just interesting to see how in control he was of different as- like avenues of major aspects of hum- of like how life ran in the early 1900s. So Scarface released in 1932, and Hughes took a break from Hollywood to more pursue his aviation career. So in 1934, Howard Hughes won a flying race. And after winning that race, he decided to set up the Hughes Aircraft Company and went on ad- the adventure of building the fastest flying plane to beat the world record. And he did that a year later in 1935. He beat the speed record for flying over land in a plane called the H1, flying around five, or not 500, 352 miles per hour, which in 1935, I feel like is pretty impressive. Oh, gosh, yeah, that's insane. So, but, I mean, you're building a plane for one... What? We're going to skate to one song, one song only. <laughs> he had a one-track mind on what this was going to be for, so as long as it goes fast, that's all you really need it for. Right, and there
0: was no commercial use for it. Like yeah. This was never going to be applied to like passenger planes.
1: Yeah, you didn't need to send this off to the war or anything. This was just made to be fast and not die.
0: Yep, just a speedy boy.
1: He even... Went further than that to beat another record. And two years later, after the flying over land speed record, he custom fitted a Lockheed 14 Super Electra and set out with a four man crew to set the record for the fastest flight around the world. He started in Brooklyn and made stops in Paris, Moscow, Omsk, and Yakutsk in Siberia, and Fairbanks in Minneapolis. And after three days, 19 hours, and 17 minutes, Howard had completed his circumnavigation of the globe and returned home and was hailed as a hero upon his return back. And all of the cities around the area had ticker tape parades in his honor. And it was said that Hughes was a pretty like shy guy. He wasn't a very outspoken man like as far as his public appearance went for the most part. So everyone that reported on this ticker tape parades that it was just funny to see this more introverted personality guy being paraded around the city for multiple days trying to deal with all this attention
0: like hi guys (laughs) i don't want this attention i just
2: like flying (laughs) i don't know what to do with my hands
0: (laughs) this man did all this but like his greatest fear is just getting happy birthday sung to him
2: Like someone having a surprise birthday party for him. It's like his greatest fear. Yeah, him going 350 miles an hour, heartbeat's fine. (laughs) Him talking to somebody. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So he moved into
1: the commercial aviation realm after this by purchasing a majority share in Trans World Airline. And shortly after this, he began receiving requests from the government for his Hughes aircraft company to help supply the war effort in Europe. And at first it was just sending artillery shells and plane parts and stuff. But after the U.S. got well and truly involved in the war, World War II, he received a lot more contracts, specifically one to build a like a troop transport plane capable of holding up to 700 troops or up to 60 tons of material because they were concerned about the like water landing vehicles and Uh, land vehicles not being enough to transport troops and goods sufficiently enough. So they wanted him to build a large plane that could do the same thing. So the project was labeled the H4 or the Spruce Goose and was the largest plane ever constructed with a wingspan of 320 feet at the time.
0: The Spruce Goose is loose. Wow.
1: (laughs) It's so funny because all of the articles said that Howard hated the name Spruce Goose, but that's what everyone called it. it's <laughs> so, so funny. So I feel like everyone was just trying to get one back on him. It's just being like, Well, he hates this name. We should keep calling it this. Oh, definitely.
0: After- and you know he tried to use like everything in his power to get a change. Oh yeah.
1: But once it's stuck, it's stuck.
2: <laughs> yep. That's like sorry to derail us a little bit, but I forget when this was. It was like they had a uh like a public poll to name a train. <laughs> so I think it was in like Norway or like something like that, and the top one was Trainy McTrainface. <laughs> Wasn't that
0: Bodie McBoatface? And
2: yeah, I don't know too. if Bodie McBoatface was first or Trainy McTrainface. One of them was first. That the first one they said no, we're not doing that, and then the second one, yeah. they're like, all right, fine, we'll nom- name it Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> That's so funny. That's just the internet just being silly it's, in the right. What way. That's what happens when you give the public power. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. <laughs> so
0: we're never going to put other. Like in one of our polls ever. (laughs) Right.
1: So around the same time, Hughes not only had another plane crash, but also run-ins with the government. So he was testing a boat plane and it was flying over a lake in Nevada and ended up crashing. So Hughes once again walked away relatively unscathed, but had a, a relatively large gash on top of his head. Uh, but two others on board were not as lucky and died in the accident. I believe it was an engineer, and I can't remember who the other person was. But So he's doing a lot of good, but he's also running across some f- bad things going on. Right, there's skeletons in the closet. Definitely. So, I mean, it's not like it was completely his fault. It was an airplane crash. I mean, they happen, but... Also, it gets to a point where this guy is crashing multiple planes. Jesus. Maybe we should not be in the same one yeah. as him.
2: But... The luck of him. Like, multiple plane accidents, right? Is this his second one? No? A, this, I believe, was his second large one, at least. It's
1: crazy. So, it, he's <laughs> very lucky that he's been walking away from these like, without as much as broken bones. Much less his life, so... As for the government coming around, they were concerned with whether Hughes was misusing the millions of dollars they gave him for the transport plane project, Uh, because being as obsessed with perfection and control as Howard Hughes was, everything was running over budget and past due, which is a recurring theme with him. So in one of his last public appearances, as well as one of his most well-spoken public appearances, Hughes defended his work in the project, and in front of a Senate committee he said, and I quote: "I put the sweat of my life into this thing. I have my reputation rolled up in it, and I have stated several times that if it's a failure, I'll probably leave this country and never come back, and I mean it. <laughs> I'm taking my ball
0: and going home. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> one pissed off kid. It sounds <laughs> right, like. but I mean, he was never like a big public speaker. So for him to come out and have this really well spoken and very thought out defense of his work was pretty crazy, especially when it was a." Publicly aired televised thing. So after that, the government kind of gave him a little bit of leeway. But he was also working on another plane for the government at the time, which was a reconnaissance plane called the XF 11. And he took it up for a flight in 1946 in Los Angeles. So for the first 45 minutes, it functioned perfectly. But then one of the propellers malfunctioned and he crashed into a house. And Hughes was pretty badly injured, and rushed to a hospital. So this is the first time he's seriously injured by one of his accidents. And this is coming not that long after his last accident. So he suffered burns, head injuries, and neck fractures. And this was where he got a lot of his lifelong pains from, which would eventually be one of the major reasons why his mental health deteriorated. I wonder if, like,
0: on the third time... He crashed a plane like when the engine went out or when the propeller went out. He just looked at it like, again, yeah, freaking again. Freaking again. It's
2: like a fender bender to him at this point. Yeah, He's like, well. He just looks at his watch. He's like, well, I'll
1: be on the ground in like probably a minute or half, a right. minute Pour, and a half or so. Pours
0: himself a glass. Yeah, he's
1: like, I'll see you in a little bit. Yep. <laughs> so the Spruce Goose, on the other hand, his other government project, only made one flight, and it was commandeered by none other than Howard Hughes himself. So to insist that it actually flew on uh, November 2nd, 1947, he took it into the air for its first and only time and traveled about a mile, 70 feet above the water at Long Beach, California. And after this flight, he paid millions to keep the plane in a climate controlled hangar until he died. And then it was moved from there to an aviation museum in Oregon, which is where, where it resides now. So it crashed in the water. Right, it's pretty much just landed softly in the water, but yeah, like it didn't really. He definitely fight. knew that was gonna happen too. He's like, I can't take this thing yeah. over land. Yeah, so he was, he was ready for it to, but he just wanted to prove like this thing will fly, it'll get off the ground. So kind
0: of crazy because that big crash where he was rushed to the hospital happened in '46, and then a year later, uh, in November in '47, yeah. he basically said, run it back. Yeah, yeah. he's like, let's try it was
1: tried again. Yep, and this was like a six engine or six propeller plane like this thing was massive big big boy boy. yeah big boy. i mean it only got 70 feet of above the ground so it's not like it was that crazy but it did fly
0: so it was supposed to haul 700 troops yeah or or...
2: 60 tons of material like wait it's a lot you can just fly at 70 feet over (laughs) the ocean right hey you guys said you
1: didn't want him to be in the water so
2: it's not in the water
1: (laughs) just above it
0: Oh yeah, seventy feet. Like my mind just always goes to yards because of football. That's like, it's not twenty yards above the ocean. Mm-hmm. Are we even counting that as a liftoff, or not, is it more of like a skim off? Not that much.
1: <laughs> After his XF eleven accident, Hughes started to rely a lot more on drugs to help manage his pain, and the drugs that he would regularly use were a combination of codeine, Valium, and emperin, and a lot of these would be obtained by his longtime aides and then turned over to him. So he was not getting these through good means, rather legal, illegal means. So it started simply with the emperor and compound number four, which is basically aspirin. However, when things got worse, he would d- dissolve straight up codeine tablets <laughs> in water and inject himself with Valium and eventually straight morphine. <laughs> So, he became a very big drug fiend to help manage his lifelong pains that he suffered from his multiple plane accidents. Oh my god. So, if you can't tell, this is where things start to spiral very much out of control. So, at this point, the medications pushed Howard Hughes' OCD behaviors into overdrive, and I think this is where his mother's lasting effects kind of come in from his childhood, where she nurtured him into the idea that germs were bad. So he would obsessively wash his hands and if things weren't organized just that he wanted them, he would kind of fly into a rage. So with all the drugs and everything, plus this deep seated kind of, I don't want to say programming, but by his mother, it kind of all just culminated into a very bad lifestyle for him eventually. So, Along with his drug use straying closer to addiction in the early periods, Hughes was also starting to make his way through many Hollywood starlets, and his wife divorced him, this is 20 years before, around 20 years before where we are now in 1929, so from 1929 to up to his heavy drug use, he was seeing various golden girls of the day like Jean Peters, Catherine Hepburn, and Ava Gardner. And he also went back to Hollywood to make another controversial film, his most controversial film, called The Outlaw, starring Jane Russell. So Howard Hughes did his best in this film to accent Jane's large breasts, even going as far, accordingly or apparently, to make her a special wire push-up bra to accentuate her figure. And... It was rumored that she actually wore the bra, but she just told Hughes that she did and wore her own because of how uncomfortable it was. Yeah, it's like the guy could build planes.
0: I can't imagine he could just build up <laughs> <Yeah. build laughs> pr- bras. It sounded like the- so
1: terrible from the article that I read. It was just like, yeah, it was a bunch of wires that were all like tied together to push up on her breasts better it's just like i can of understand why you would not want to wear that he yeah. throws
2: a two-stroke engine on it like, <laughs> what
0: yeah and a radio transmitter like what i just kind of want to just talk wings to them. wings yeah
2: really push them up
0: yeah why is there a 240 ho- horsepower engine in my bra howard
2: <laughs> uh, make your boobs look better i
1: don't know <laughs> <laughs> so the film was eventually released after another run-in with the sensors and its first release was pretty much a flop, but it released a second time and became a, eventually became a box office hit. I believe it was officially released in 1943. So he was kind of just living life in pretty, I don't want to say debaucherously, but it was kind of a little more scandalous the way he mm-hmm. was starting to live. And Evan, you said you had some kind of notes on how he was treating some of the, the Hollywood starlets that he was dealing with so
0: yeah so in the New York Post uh, article I mentioned was one of our sources they kind of did a quick summary of the book seduction uh, sex lies and stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood uh, by Karina Longworth uh, she basically kind of mentioned that with Howard Hughes being so obsessed with control and so I believe we're we've been calling it OCD at this point just with the drug use um, he would fly into extreme fits of rage uh which did lead to uh in the book karina longworth uh mentions that and these are from quotes from uh let me back up from ava gardner uh basically saying that like one time he flew into a rage after she was uh with ava gardner was with her ex-husband and kind of beat the shit out of her Uh, Ava Gardner then took a bronze statue and whacked him in the head and was able to get away. Um, But it's also said in this book that with some of the other Hollywood stars, actresses that he would try to court and date, he would drop the line that uh, they were the only girl that ever brought him to sexual climax. (laughs) Like, in a way to flatter them. And then he would also... Uh, like his big move was to propose, like super soon, just to kind of have those that aspect of control. And uh, with one, let me just double check so I'm not misspeaking here. Uh, with a Faith Domergue, uh, who was then 16 uh, and under contract with Warner Brothers, uh, he bought her contract, um, proposed to her, which again was just kind of kind of his move. And she didn't go through with the marriage and it kind of just ruined her career. Um, and that's there's also another example where he did uh, build like a mansion for this one actress. I believe her name was sorry one second. Uh, Gloria Vanderbilt uh, built her a mansion, assigned her a driver, and basically said you need to till the driver was essentially a spy and said, you need a markdown and let me know wherever she goes. That's essentially kind of having that aspect with control. So coupled with like the copious drug abuse, as well as as many mental health issues, not giving him that excuse, but you could definitely see it wasn't, he wasn't the greatest with woman. That's basically yeah. that he would have got me too out of the ass. <laughs> yeah.
1: And publicly he did put on like a good face. He was, pretty well regarded by everyone pretty well everyone knew that he was making his way through various women like especially his wife for obvious reasons because she eventually divorced him Mm -hmm. because it was said that for about two years she knew that he was going out and sleeping with all these other women and she just eventually got fed up and told him i'm done i'm leaving you and stated that he was just not there for her, basically. And so they granted her the divorce, luckily. But, yeah, he...
0: I wonder what her main, her main argument was. Well, um, sleeping with other people, and he keeps on crashing into everything.
1: <laughs> He's kind of just a big dick. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> the liability to live with. He might crash into our house at any given moment. <laughs> right.
0: this Our entire home is just a tinderbox. Yeah.
2: <laughs> But uh, the story that you mentioned with
1: Ava Gardner, where she hit him in the head with that bronze statue, these head injuries just kept stacking up for him, and that was a huge... CT. Yeah. It... What if like, every
0: time he got drunk, too, he just knocked his head against the wall? He's one of those kind of drunks? Just head through the wall?
1: Yeah. So between the plane crashes and his lifelong pain, coupled with multiple most likely concussions and other head injuries... And this deep seated paranoia, he just kind of started to live in a prison of his own mind eventually.
0: Yeah, it affected every part of his life.
1: Yeah. So after his Senate hearing, he became a lot more reclusive and rarely made appearances in public. All of his aides became or began calling him the old man, and the FBI, who is still keeping tabs on him because of the appropriated funds scandal said that he was, and I quote, a screwball paranoiac. So he's obviously outwardly starting to lose it here. So his aides had been discussing potentially moving him and getting him committed to a mental hospital. So Hughes made a very split decision and married a former lover named Gene Peters, who was one of the starlets that he had seen in Hollywood. So he thought that this way the aides would have to go through both her and him to get him committed instead of just saying, hey, we're putting you up for like help in this mental hospital. So pretty much everyone knew it wasn't for romantic reasons. It was more so just to uh, a means to an end. So, one of his first major odd behaviors came in the spring of 1958. So, according to playgroundtothestars.com, after a screening at his screening room at Goldwyn Studio, they screened an all black movie called Porgy and Bess. And apparently, he did not like the fact that they screened an all black movie at his screening room, which is probably a pretty recurring theme throughout Hollywood at the time. But he did not want to stay there anymore, so he had his aides book him a screening room on Sunset Boulevard, so that he could view some movies. So he moved into this screening area, and he stayed in there for, I believe, it was about four months, watching movies and consuming nothing but milk, Hershey bars, pecans, and Poland spring Poland spring water. That it's quite the diet. Yeah. It's like David- it's like
0: normal, 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 and then rich people shit. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's like David Bowie doing his milk and peppers. Like, oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah David Bowie and cocaine. There was, it was <laughs> yeah. milk,
2: pepper, yeah, like green peppers, red peppers, and cocaine. Yeah, I don't. How do you live? That's
1: quite the diet. Yeah.
2: So. He would
1: supposedly do nothing here but sit naked in the dark and stare at the screen, relieve himself in empty bottles and containers, and communicate with his aides by writing on yellow legal pad paper, mostly writing notes, telling them to not look at him and only speak to
2: him if they were spoken to first. (laughs) I just love that. He's communicating by these these notes, right? Writes down the note, like, hey, come over here. The notes picks it up, reads it don't look at me (laughs) from what it sounded
1: like, he was just like sliding these under the door and giving them to him that way. So I don't even think they were actually seeing him at all. So I don't know why it was necessary to put that on there, but I guess i maybe they were coming in every once in a while. But can you just imagine seeing your boss in this dark room looking completely crazed, just completely naked drinking milk out of the gallon with a bunch of Hershey wrappers. Like, It's an insane thing to think. Don't look at me.
0: (laughs) I don't want my picture taken right now.
1: (laughs) And uh, at this point in the biographics video, they show a scene from the aviator. And I don't know how much truth there is to the actual statements that Leonardo makes, but... Leonardo DiCaprio says a line, basically, where it's like, I found a way to open a bag of chips and get the perfect angle so that I can stick my hand in without hitting the paper of the bag and still get the chip out. So, it's basically, I don't, but... It's called
0: innovation, never heard of it.
1: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I don't know how much truth there is to that actual statement, but the sentiment remains that he's completely losing it to mm-hmm. his OCD, which was not diagnosed, so... There was no way to help him at this point.
0: Was it even a clinical term
1: uh, at I, this point? Honestly, I don't know. It Maybe it wasn't. But pretty much everyone that has done reports on him say now that it was pretty telltale signs of obsessive compulsive disorder running rampant, and there's just no way to treat it. And obviously, mental health wasn't as big of a, th- a thing for back in the day, especially for men, because... Men weren't going to therapy in 1958,
0: 1960s. Right, and his dad just, again, his dad may have been a great guy, but just with the upbringing, it's like he was constantly called a sissy. So, like, yeah, compound that with just the now no available mental health resources. He's,
1: he's very much a victim of the time period as well as his own demise. Sure. So there's a lot of different factors that led to him becoming the way that he was. So he finally emerged four months later and was completely unkempt and ragged, but after he came out of the screening room, he almost immediately checked into the Beverly Hills Hotel, which was a temporary living situation, or was supposed to be a temporary living spot, and he lived there indefinitely for years, and resumed his naked, dark screening habits. (laughs) And at this point, all of his communications with his aides and all of his business dealings were done through the phone. So, he sold his controlling portion of Transworld Airlines, and at this point, he became a billionaire, making him the richest
2: man in the world. Ah oh, Man, I'd laugh, but I'm just thinking how sad that is. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm sorry I laughed, but it's just, I don't know. It, it's funny. It's just, <laughs> I mean, just he's just sad as He's a shit, naked, though. crazed yeah. maniac
1: watching a bunch of movies in a yeah. dark hotel room. Yeah.
0: Right, and he's 53 yeah. at this point.
1: Yeah. And he's got literally a billion dollars in 1960. The <laughs> richest
0: man in the world at the time was just out of his mind. Yeah, That's it, a really scary and weird thing to think about. Yeah, right?
1: it just kind of gives you a little a little thing to think about where it's people with money don't always have their wits about them. So maybe we shouldn't have to <laughs> let them control a lot of major important decisions right. in the world.
0: Especially when that just keeps on running
1: into walls yeah. <laughs> in airplanes. Yeah so after leaving the beverly hills hotel he moved to a penthouse suite at the desert inn in las vegas and eventually the hotel told him that he couldn't stay there any longer due to the fact that he wasn't gambling so he just bought the hotel and decided to stay in the penthouse anyways (laughs) and this would start his trend of buying multiple casino hotels like the sands and the frontier in las vegas even leading to him buying a local television stations to demand that they play the movies he wanted to see while he would hole up in his penthouse.
0: Yeah, and also, like, part of that reason, like, of course, he wanted to watch, like, his movies. But there was a law where movies had to stop being shown, I believe it was, like, 10 p.m. And he's like, no, I want to watch these even later. And, like, that was another decision. Just just buy a television station.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, he's making use of his money. I don't know if it's for good reasons, right. but it's for his reasons. Mm-hmm. But at this point, people say that the only ways that you would see him were from moving to from hotel room to hotel room or uh, like going to a different house or something. It, mm-hmm. th- those were the only times that he would make any sort of public appearances.
0: Yeah, very shudded man. That's, yeah, that's for sure.
1: He went from Hollywood to Hermit very quickly. So by 1970, he is basically a complete prisoner of his own fears and was rarely seen. And one day he unannounced left the Desert Inn and went to the Bahamas. And his management, after hearing from him and were thank- thankful that he hadn't been kidnapped, which were, was the original thought that they had, were then informed by Howard Hughes that he was turning over the empire's day-to-day operation to a group of Mormon aides. So he was completely relinquishing all control of all of his companies and letting someone else run it for him at that point. So he then moved to a hotel room in London in 1972, which he left only one time. And the one time that he left, he decided to go to his plane take off all of his clothes, and fly around the city of London naked. This man just
0: loved himself and loved him some planes. Like, yeah. He was just a big fan of his body.
1: I mean, it, people say the only time he really had solace later in life was when he was flying alone. So, I mean, <laughs> I guess if if that makes him feel some sort of comfort, go for it, as long as you're not really hurting anyone. but
0: Right. Uh, just one quick tidbit, like one quick story that I saw. Um, this actually happened in 1968. So during the Cold, the Cold War uh, Apparently a Soviet submarine Which was carrying nuclear missiles I actually
1: saw this as well
0: yeah, It uh, accidentally sank in the Pacific Ocean uh, The Soviets of course tried to find it Get their stuff back But couldn't do it uh, So long story short The US actually partnered with Howard Hughes uh, Basically as a cover up story To go retrieve that sub Uh, Howard Hughes was involved in actually making the boat that would help bring the sub up. Um, but, uh, eventually, um, so when they were bringing the sub up, uh, part of it actually fell off. And so a second recovery effort was planned, but during, uh, the planning process, there was a burglary at at the LA headquarters of the Hughes Summa Corporation. And among the stolen items was actually secret documents linking Howard Hughes to the CIA and the ship, which was called the Glommer Explorer. So he was basically used as a CIA cover up. Um, Yeah, the cover up was, I believe, like Howard Hughes is mining minerals. Yeah, they said
1: he's doing seafloor or like seabed mining or whatever. Yeah,
0: I'm just so curious because he's clearly lost his mind at this point in life.
1: Oh, he's just giving them money. Yeah. Someone else is completely running that for him at right. this point. So and it was—I I think it was basically just the CIA saying, "Hey, we're going to use your name for this," and he's like, "Okay." Yeah, I. <laughs> I have no—I cl- have no clue what you're talking about, but sure. Yeah, and he's like, "Where are you?" Yeah, basically. Well, that would have been at the point where his aides were running everything, anyways. So uh, the oh, environment yeah. aides would have been in, in control. So eventually, in his London hotel room, he took a fall. And it pushed him to use drugs even more. And this is where he started using straight-up morphine to control his pain. And this fall also took away his ability to walk. So he further deteriorated from there, and eventually he died on a plane on his way to Houston to receive medical treatment. So in the New York Post article, I believe it was, from 1977, it quoted that the once six foot four, one hundred and fifty pound Howard Hughes was only six foot one and ninety-four pounds by the Ooh. time of his death on April fifth, nineteen seventy six. And the cause of his death was found to be kidney failure, most likely due to the immense
2: amount of drugs that he was yeah. taking. Yeah, morphine probably doesn't do wonders for your insides. Yeah. It was literally given to soldiers to help them pass into death. Yeah. yeah. Like, like right. So Whew.
1: but that's just insane that just the fact that while he was considered healthy, he was 150 pounds and six foot four. So he's skinny as yeah. hell. But when they found him, I'd like to take him to get medical treatment. He was only six one ninety four pounds. He's less than a hundred pounds when he passed away. It's just that it just shows the extent of the deterioration, not only mentally but physically, how much his body wasted away in this time period and Hershey bars can only get you so far. Yeah, I guess so. Those pecans helped a little bit. Right? That's where he got his protein. Yeah. So after his death, the Hughes Aircraft Company, which was owned by Howard Hughes Medical Institute, was broken up and sold off to companies like GM, Raytheon, and Boeing. And the Howard Hughes Medical Institute became a world-renowned institute for biomedical research and education. So it still contributed a lot of good things to a lot of stuff we do now for modern medicine. So, I mean, his name still carries into today for doing a lot of good, but as we have previously mentioned, he also did a lot of things in his life that should not be very well-renowned. So, mm-hmm. But in all, Howard Hughes lived an extraordinary life. It was filled with glitz and glamour, but it was ultimately a life marked more by his undiagnosed mental illness than all the great things that he did. And after years of living a life bridging the divide between the ultra-wealthy as well as the ultra-famous, he kind of created a new version of celebrity that pushed self-promotion and public image more to the forefront than tycoons like the Rockefellers or the Carnegies. And his story is particularly American and perhaps more particularly modern American because he kind of resembled proto-versions of people like Bill Gates or Elon Musk, these wealthy public figures who put themselves into the public eye to help promote themselves in their business and using their self-image to market a brand. But due to an overbearing and germ-fearing mother, followed later by multiple plane crashes and head injuries, and last but not least, copious drug use, Howard Hughes Jr. slowly fell into his own self-made hole, and he would never get out of that hole until his death in 1976. And that is the... Life and Death of Howard Hughes, the original eccentric billionaire.
0: Yeah, I love what you said about, you know, the particular American version of just a wealthy person. Like, he just used basically his brand to propel whatever he was doing at the time. and Like, he was the one to fly the airplanes yeah. on, on all these tests. For good and bad, because... Crashed a couple times.
1: Right. But he really was one of the forerunners of using his face as Mm -hmm. the face of what he did. Because the Carnegies and the Rockefellers, they were very good businessmen and, and completely changed different aspects of life. But they really didn't do it by promoting them, their self, or like the image of themselves, at least. They just kind of did their business and let everyone else run things. So he was kind of one of the first that really did bridge the gap between celebrity and ultra wealthy where he wasn't right. like sitting behind the curtain as this mysterious wealthy sponsor. He kind of, he went out and did everything he wanted to do and did it in the public eye. So mm-hmm. it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. at 18 just kind of starting into Hollywood. Like he got his million and just kind of pursued dreams. Right. There on.
1: And it is pretty commendable that he didn't really fall into any drug use or like alcohol abuse or Mm -hmm. anything really until he started having like all of these accidents happen Mm -hmm. because before that he was just a very peculiar man who knew how he wanted things done but he still did things very well for the most part so it, it is pretty cool to see that he at this young age was responsible enough to build this huge Influence in multiple different avenues. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not many guys that could, uh, especially at the time, say, I'm working on government contracts for flying as well as making Hollywood box office hits. Like, that's pretty crazy. So, definitely he, very influential, but just sad to see the way his life turned out. So, mm-hmm. And as we've mentioned on this podcast before, mental health's a big deal, especially for men who a lot of times take pride over getting actual help. So it's not not a bad thing to go out and seek help. Go go find a therapist or someone to talk to and get the proper, whether it be medication or just whether it be talking to someone, whatever the correct avenue for you is. Just keep trying things until something connects and... You can live a life that you're happy with, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. other, very well uh, put.
2: I, I just to add on that a little bit. Um, uh, just kind of how messed up sometimes. I don't want to get into a whole thing, but like with mental health and like mental stuff like that, it's sometimes in this in this country. There's it's kind of hard to find a therapist, and it's not very affordable sometimes. But there are other avenues like. I'm this, obviously not a sponsor, but this BetterHelp. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a more affordable way sometimes to find somebody. So yeah, there are I, other avenues besides the, you know, traditional shrink and couch or whatever. Right.
1: Like if you don't feel comfortable going into an office and speaking to someone, BetterHelp does it all online. Right. And you can if you don't like the first person that you get as a counselor, you can right. easily switch between different ones and there's plenty right. of people on there to help. So yeah. That's it there's so many different ways now that are being prioritized to help people who need help, and I think that's a huge step forward. Right, and it's also cool to see people like when Simone Biles refused to to uh, participate mm-hmm. in the Olympics because she was not in the right headspace. Mm-hmm. Right, it really did show that mental health needs to be something that's more prioritized. And I think now we definitely have a lot better grasp on how to control things like what Howard Hughes is going through, especially mm-hmm. so
0: right yeah definitely even just from recent football news uh stud wide receiver calvin ridley for the atlanta falcons uh he took uh the past two games off for personal reasons and came out saying like hey not in the right headspace dealing with a lot of mental uh, i believe he said anxiety and depression and so like putting a focus on that is just so important and like you guys mentioned there are just plenty of resources um Definitely encourage everyone that's going through something like that to uh, act on it. Especially
1: after the past couple of years, it's right. Right. A lot of people have had a lot of very rough times, so it's it's not a bad thing to go reach out to someone right. to mm-hmm. say, "Hey, I'm really struggling here. Can you give me a little bit of time to just, even if it's just listening? Like mm-hmm. you don't even have to say anything. Sometimes it's just getting it off their chest is enough. So right. Yep. Especially for these pro athletes, where if they're not in the right headspace and they stress, and yeah. they make one wrong move, it could they die. Literally, yeah, it could literally end their life. Yeah. So, yeah, just take care of yourselves out there and keep doing what you need to do to be happy.
0: Keeping beautiful people.
1: Yes, all <laughs> of you people out there, are beautiful people, and we love you all. So, just smooches. Anyways, Evan, you wanna. Tell them where they can reach out to us if they want to get in contact with us for whatever reason.
0: Well, first and foremost, you can find us on TikTok and. at the Gems of History. Uh, we've been posting some pretty funny things, in my very biased opinion. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just go check us out. We'll be trying to do uh, some more content with that. Um, just need to find time to film some things. But on Twitter, you can find us at Gems underscore History. And then on Instagram, well, actually, you can find also find Jacob from Wisco or Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, Mark at Mark underscore sign B. Uh, you can find myself at Whatevskis. Uh, Marshall, do you want to plug your social media? Not, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> not important. No one's ever said yes.
2: <laughs> I think I plugged it once, but I'm like, Man, I don't
1: really care, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I just post about different metal bands and then r- random other stuff, yeah. so it's not... Also speaking of metal bands, I'm pretty disappointed, Wisconsin. We need to step it up because the crowd at the Slipknot show in Arizona started a 30 foot bonfire during the show. So Holy shit! We need to really get it get it going. <laughs> From what? <laughs> I don't know. Did they just the like seats? break the chairs. And, like, they they sang "Happy Birthday" to the guitarist whose name is Mick. And then they just started a giant bonfire, just in the so, pit or what? Just like in the back of the crowd. Oh my god! So Slipknot had to like stop the show, and it, like the article—it was funny. The article said Slipknot forced to stop show. So because I, I feel like the band probably had no like they didn't care at all. Yeah, they're the, like hell yeah. The organizers shit. was probably like guys, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's my land.
0: Uh, then you find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast.
1: And of course, you can reach out to us uh, at our email, Gems of Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, even though this was a special case where we had a donation to give us a suggestion for an episode, if you want to email us suggestions, we'll always take them into account. Maybe we'll talk about them later on a different date, but we're always looking forward to hearing from you guys. So If you want us to just do it, just slip us a nice $5 bill. <laughs> yeah. Then we'll take a 10-minute play- plane ride with you. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> But, yeah, as we said in the beginning of the episode, we've done a lot of really morbid stuff. So if you got any, like, lighthearted stuff that you think would be fun for us to cover, just let us know.
0: Yes, wholesome content, please.
1: But, Marshall, thank you for joining us again.
2: No problem. Glad Appreciate to be here.
1: You. And that's all we got for you this week. I don't know what we'll be planning for next week. We're kind of just taking it episode by episode at this point. We're not really following the same host-by-host host formula mm-hmm. anymore. We kind of lost track. You're right. <laughs> I could
0: have a little some-some cooking.
1: Hey, so maybe we'll I'll do some more collab episodes, but we'll we'll figure it out as we go. So uh, dogs of Thanksgiving murders on Thanksgiving Day, dogs uh, that murdered murder- people on Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanksgiving Day, yeah. Wow, <laughs> yeah, very niche audience. I here. found one story. <laughs> yeah. How do I make this into an hour and a half podcast? All right, guys, that's all we got for you. We'll talk to you guys later. Everyone, stay safe, stay healthy, and take care of yourselves out there. Adios. Adios.